Love Talk Radio. Hi, please join me, Donna Bearstein, in welcoming tonight's truly special to Farrah Talk guest, Susan Piver. Susan is a New York Times best-selling author of seven books, a frequent popular retreat leader, and founder of the Open Heart Project, an international online meditation community with more than 12,000 members. Her books include the Hard Questions series, the award-winning How Not to Be Afraid of Your Own Life, and The Wisdom of a Broken Heart. Susan has studied Buddhism since 1995, graduating from a Buddhist seminary in 2004, and in 2005 being authorized to teach meditation in the Shambhala Buddhist lineage. Today, she leads in-person and virtual workshops and speaks internationally on spirituality, meditation, communication styles, relationships, and creativity. In addition to writing the Relationships column for Body and Soul magazine, Susan is the meditation expert and contributor at drwild.com and frequently appears as a network TV guest for shows including The Oprah Winfrey Show, CNN, Today, and The Tyra Banks Show. Her written work has been featured in numerous publications like The New York Times, Time Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, Money, Parade, and many others. It is truly an honor to welcome Susan to this evening's To Ferret Talk. I'm so glad Susan, to be here. Welcome. Thank you. I'm um, very glad to be here. Yes, I'm very glad you're here too. Uh it's it's really a personal pleasure for me. Um I'm a member, as you know, of your open heart project and I'm a very appreciative participant in some of your virtual classes and retreats. So um, I know firsthand what a gracious, accessible, and generous teacher you are. Oh, so, thank you so much. Uh, I mean that sincerely, and um, that's the reason that I'm especially happy to having our listeners tonight benefit from your own experiences um, and your wisdom as well. So I think what I'd like to do is start by having you tell us um, how you in your own life came to the practice of meditation. Hmm. Yeah, well, I probably like a lot of your listeners have read a lot and searched a lot, and but I never really thought I would, I didn't really think too much about meditation, but I, like I say, I read a lot, and one day I was reading a book, this was many years ago now, called uh, The Heart of the Buddha by a Tibetan meditation teacher named Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. And I was kind of mesmerized by that book and by his voice. And I, I just remember thinking, someone makes sense. Finally, someone is someone saying something that makes sense to me. And then I sort of forgot about it. And then by serendipity, I will not make this a long story, I happened to meet someone that worked at the publishing house that published that book. And we became friends, and I said, I might like to learn meditation. And he said, we were in a noisy restaurant, and it was like all the noise shut off. And he looked at me and said, what kind? And I, this was one of the few instances in my life where I, it was like I heard a voice, and it was my own voice saying, Tibetan? 
<laughs> but I didn't really know there was any such thing as the Tibetan uh-huh. Buddhist lineage. And anyway, so he said, well, I know someone who might want to teach you. And that person turned out to be my meditation instructor to this very day, like almost 20 years later. So the combination of just personal karma and really, really good luck. That instructor in Massachusetts or New York or abroad? Yeah, in Massachusetts. Uh-huh. All right. And so when you say Tibetan Buddhism, um, is Shambhala Buddhism the only brand of Tibetan Buddhism or are there others? No, there are many others. Well, there are okay. four main schools of Tibetan Buddhism, Geluk, Kagyu, Nyingma, and Sakya. And they each of those branches has sub-lineages and teachers and a lineage holder, like the Dalai Lama is the lineage holder of one of those schools, the Gelug school. And Sambhala Buddhism combines influences from two of those four schools, the Nyingma and Kagyu schools. So it's a very rich, deep tradition with a lot of history, but also a tremendous amount of modern thought brought by Chogyam Trungpa, who brought the Shambhala teachings to us in the West. So it's the only lineage I know of that really focuses on creating not just personal enlightenment, but societal enlightenment. So many of the teachings are about just how to be a decent human in the world and how to help other people um, as sort of the point of your life. So it's an interesting yeah. lineage for sure. Uh-huh. And and obviously that's what appealed to you about it. And I think um, for any any of our listeners who go to your website, which is susanpiver.com, um, one of the web pages there is um, includes your rules to live by. And I know that in my experience of your teachings, um, I've found that you do a wonderful job of, as you say, not not just teaching meditation, but also the human traits that a meditation practice may help us develop kindness, um, manners, etc. Can you talk a little bit about that and about how, why that's important to you as an individual, why it should be important for others as an individual and for our society as a whole? Uh, yes, and, and I appreciate you pointing that out and, and saying it so generously. It's, it is the point of the practice. And Sometimes meditation students say to me, how do I know if I'm doing this right? You know, nobody Mm -hmm. wants to sit there on the cushion hour after hour and year after year doing it wrong, quote unquote. Um, But the truth is there is no way to do it wrong or right. And the point of the practice is not to be good at meditation. The -hmm. point of meditation, breath awareness meditation, isn't to be perfectly perfect following of breath, the point of meditation is to become perfect at being who you are, not to become Mm -hmm. perfect at the technique. So when we practice meditation with uh, all our confusion and our brilliance and our doubt and our inspiration, we soften in a very essential way to who we are simply by the act of being with ourselves without trying to change ourselves. Krishnamurti, the great teacher of our lifetime that passed away probably 50 years ago, I think, said, uh, and I may be paraphrasing here, 
When you bring attention to who you are without trying to change it, who you are begins to transform. And that is really the pith of the practice. You spend time with yourself without trying to change yourself and transformation simply begins. And in that transformation, through that transformation, arise our true, our most innate qualities, which are gentleness and fearlessness and a deep wisdom beyond concept. So it's almost guaranteed. It's like you can't avoid these qualities through meditation. And even though in our current culture it's presented as a kind of technology for being successful or healthy or, Mm -hmm. you know, good things, everybody should be successful and healthy, it's so much more than that. It's a way of becoming genuine and opening your heart to this world. And when your heart is open, you can have tremendous um, bearing and, and bring positive qualities to everything you do. Yes, and I think um, I think it was last week in your meditation email you talked about not being hard on ourselves if we skip a practice. I know often in your and the meditation email that I'm talking about comes from your Open Heart Project, which, um, as I mentioned in the introduction, I believe has more than twelve thousand members around the world um, now, and and you send out a weekly email with a video meditation your cat sometimes in the meditation, which I love. <laughs> and, and and again, one of the things that I personally really appreciate about your teachings is that you that you do say, hey, you can be human. You can you can have um your own challenges. You can miss meditation practices. You can be interrupted by your cat or your dog, et cetera. And yet <laughs> continue, right? Um Absolutely. And that is not that is not Uh, oh, by the way, P.S., you're allowed to be human. It's actually the practice itself. And the practice of not being hard on yourself is a very advanced practice. It requires tremendous focus and gentleness. And I'm not just saying that because I'm trying to let everybody off the hook and, you know, oh, don't worry about it. If you miss a few, it's okay. Just get back on the wagon. That's yeah, that's true, but really that is the practice, the practice of softening. And, I, you know, I don't know about you, but I know that I'm already really, really good at being very hard on myself and very yes, hard on oh, Me too, yes. <laughs> okay, sister. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so we don't need to practice that in our meditation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Actually, another thing, I think I think my first introduction to you, Susan, was reading The Wisdom of the Broken Heart some years ago when I was going through a divorce, and I love that book. I read it in the hard copy. And then in the last few weeks, I listened to it again in preparation for our talk. And in that book, again, um, you're so candid about your own humanity. And um, maybe you can share a little bit with our listeners because I think this ties into how you came to meditation. And um, talk a little bit about why meditation appealed to you. And and I know in the book, for those of you who haven't read it, and and I think we all experience broken hearts at different times in our lives, um, and, and 
in that book you talk about a broken heart being a potential portal to the divine, basically, mm. or to or to a spiritual perception. Um, I wondered if you could talk about what led you to want to write about the wisdom of a broken heart and how that ties in to your search for um, a practice that would help you deal with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for reading and then listening to the book. It really means a lot to me. I, I appreciate that very much. It was also um, very nice to listen to it again and to hear your, I mean, to listen to it as opposed to reading it because to hear your voice, though. So. I enjoyed reading it. I enjoyed creating yeah. that audiobook. Um, yeah, when I... Everybody gets their heart broken, pretty much. And, you know, okay, so you suffer for weeks or months or a little, you know, some period of time and then you get over it and move on. But some kinds of heartbreak you don't get over. You don't move on. They just sort of shatter you. And no one can really explain why than sometimes and not others but when that happened to me it was a long time ago but I never forgot it I I was shocked at how devastating the pain was I I was like what other people go through this that's impossible because it was like my whole life ground to a halt for a couple years it was really uh, so painful and so difficult and I one of the hallmarks of heartbreak from lost love, because obviously there's many kinds of heartbreak, is obsessive thinking. Just you can't stop thinking. Why did I do this? If only I had done that. Why wasn't I taller? Maybe I should have worn pink. I'll never find love. That person is a jerk. I now I'm a jerk. You know, it, you can't stop. Your, you can't stop. It goes on all day, and it goes on sometimes all night. And I told this story in the book. One of the one day when it was like at its pitch, I was just probably together right now, and they're probably laughing at me, and I'll never find love again, and this was my only chance, and I don't, I don't even like that person anymore anyway, and why do I feel this way, and so forth and so on. I was taking out the trash in the midst of all this because it was trash day, mm-hmm. and I was rolling these two trash barrels down a little hill. My I lived in a a little house on top of a little hill and I was just obsessing and crying and it just was reaching this I didn't think I could take it anymore I got to the curb and I I sat down in between the two trash cans and the only thing I could think was maybe when the trash people come they'll throw me away because I don't think I can take this anymore I, I, I just I can't and in that moment, it's like I heard a voice. Again, this is the only other time this ever happened to me. And that voice said, but nothing is happening right now. Yes. And that kind of shocked me. And I looked around and I was like, nothing is happening. No one is laughing at me. My, you know, future relationships are not being destroyed. My past is not here taunting me. It's trash day. (laughs) And I'm sitting here on the curb. And that's it. And I felt this incredible sense of relief for, you know, nine seconds. 
And then it all came rushing back. But in that moment, I totally got in this very visceral way that it wasn't the circumstances of my life that were causing me this searing pain. It was my thoughts. And if Mm -hmm. I could learn to work with my thoughts, I could heal my heart. And when I discovered Buddhism, you know, several years later, is when I actually began to understand how to do that and what that meant. And it doesn't mean just, I just feel the urge to add this, it doesn't mean being positive. doesn't Mm -hmm. mean not thinking negative thoughts. You know, the negativity police, put down your weapons, please, because... You can be negative. It's so, you know, fine. If things hurt and we, it's not going to hurt you the way people say it is. So it's not necessarily replacing negative, quote unquote, thoughts with positive thoughts. It's about making space for the whole drama to arise without necessarily believing that any particular scene is the whole story. It doesn't mean not feeling it. It means feeling it intensely and then watching it dissolve. Yeah. And that's better than just trying to police your thoughts, which is, makes me crazy. It's such a bad idea. So yeah, that's, 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 that's another thing that I, that I like, you know, listening to the book again recently was about, because there is such a trend in modern culture to focus on positive thinking and, and I, in my own personal experience, and I think from from listening to your book again and what you're just saying right now, um, that cuts out part of life, which includes both dark and light. And um, as you said, the, the trick is to not grasp tightly onto either of those, onto the negative or the positive thought, but see them in a flow. That's um, exactly right. So, That's beautifully said, beautifully said. So it's true then that that this experience, when you first experience a um, a uh, uh, a personal and shattering broken heart, you had not yet read the book on meditation, right? Correct. Is that right? And that, yeah, that yeah. came several years later. Yeah, actually, yeah, pretty soon. Yeah, maybe eighteen months, two years later. Pretty soon thereafter. Okay. Um, and had you been writing? Were you writing then before you started meditating? No. My whole life has been just a crazy, you know, a lot of serendipity. No, I was not, did not write. I never thought I would be a writer. I never dreamed in a million years that I would get to be a writer, which is to me like the most exalted, fantastic thing in the yeah. world. Yes, I agree with that, too. Um, How did your first book come about? Well, my first book was The Hard Questions, 100 Essential Questions to Ask Before You Say I Do. And I was getting married, and I thought, this is a crazy thing to do. (laughs) It doesn't really seem to work out too well for most people. And let me go to the bookstore and see what, wisdom I can gain about this very important commitment. And all the books were about outfits. All the books were about dresses and and the wedding. None of them were about marriage, except for when the things run aground. You know, there's a lot of books about relationship repair and so on, but none of them were about how do you make this commitment in a way that feels 
rich and deep and honest. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you look at the marriage vows, oh, I commit to love you. I don't think so. <laughs> some days I will love you, but some days I'm really not going to like you very much. I mean, I'm not, mm-hmm. I've had enough relationships to know this. So I just started writing down, I had this epiphany that your important relationships don't fail because someone doesn't love someone anymore. They fail because you can't create a life together that you that you love, that you both love. So when I had that thought, I was like, oh, I don't, what do I know about the way this person is viewing his life? Like, how much money does he have? And what is his kid going to call me? And what holidays are we going to celebrate? And so I just started writing these things down. And again, through serendipity, it, someone said, oh, that would make a good book. And then I met someone and who knew someone and it became a book. And, and then it became a New York Times bestselling book because the Oprah show called one day when I was just sitting there at my desk and that phone call happened. And then, then the whole thing just sort of, went from there it was the point i'm trying to make is it was very serendipitous yes and and do you think that the serendipity happens more frequently to you because of your meditation practice i don't i I, so my life has always been that way and 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 i and i'm not saying it's a good way because it's i just have to believe that it's my karma that it's my my situation is Whatever I plan, it doesn't matter. I just, it doesn't matter. And 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 some people, they do plan, and it does matter. They make a plan, they execute the plan, they make another plan, they execute that plan, and it. And, and I watch those people. I'm like, dude, how do you do that? Teach me your ways, because it's just not my way. It's just not how things, not how the world speaks to me. The world talks to me taps me on the shoulder from behind and goes, boo. And that's how it is. And after the first 100 questions book, I know you've written two others, um, one on adult children dealing with aging parents mm-hmm. and one on, um, uh, oh, I misplaced the title here. Will you that's okay. It's, a, it's questions you from ask it? yourself. It's called yes. Authentic Life. Yes. Yeah, so after the first book did well, suddenly I was, I got to write other books. I was like, it was so weird. I I was just a person that worked in the music business and had my own business as a book packager. And then I was a, race, a relationships expert, huh? which I thought I am really not, by the way. So anyway, it was, oh, okay, well, let me see. How do I meet this? So yeah, I wrote those books and then I wrote, um, how not to be afraid of your own life. Yeah. And then I wrote the wisdom of a broken heart that you are talking about. Yeah. And you have an eighth book coming out next year, um, mm-hmm. which is called Start Here Now, A Guide to the Path and Practice of Meditation. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that book? And I believe you have an excerpt that, um, that hopefully you will share with us too. Uh, I would love to. Thank you. I started writing this after leading the Open Heart Project for a few years and having 12,000 meditation students and hearing a lot of questions and giving the instruction many times. I, I just thought, let me, let me collect all of these things about the practice and write them down in one place. And, my main, and it really is what it says. It's a guide to the path, path and the practice of meditation because 
Yeah, it's a guide to the practice. Here's what you sit on, and here's what you do with your breath, and here's the right posture, and so on. And here's some tips for getting your practice started. But it's really a path. It's a way of being in the world. And that in my whole goal for this book, my deep, deep longing for this book, is that it will in some way return the uh, notion of heart and warmth and intensity and emotion and humanity to the dialogue on mindfulness, which has become a bit clinical, literally, actually, mm. become clinical. And, yes. and that's good. Oh, that's great. That's so useful. But that's not all it is. It's not, it's not a technology to employ for self-improvement only. It's a way of waking up to reality and it's a way of discovering who you really are. And so the book really focuses on what you called in the beginning of this interview the sort of emotional outgrowth of the of the sitting practice, things like gentleness and fearlessness and, and so on. It talks about those things too. Yes, and kindness towards yourself as well as others. And actually talking about the clinical aspect of, of the current in the current popularity of mindfulness and meditation. In the airport this weekend I picked up or last weekend I picked up a copy of the current issue of Scientific American, which has as the cover story the neuroscience of meditation, how it changes the brain boosting focus and easing stress. And that's that's a perfect example of what you're talking about, like let's meditate so that we can become a more productive executive or a more, you know, whatever, improve ourselves um, rather than accept ourselves in a way, I guess what you're saying, and and the, the emotional the emotional aspect of our humanity. Um, so if you have an excerpt, we'd love to hear it. Okay, thank you. It's, it's about a thousand words. Is that is that okay? okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, this is a chapter called Keeping It Sacred. It happens to all of us at some point that meditation starts becoming another thing to cross off the to-do list, something to slog through with the hope that it will do something for us. I mean, why spend all this time if you're not going to get something? Well, you do get something, that is for sure. But the getting seems to happen when we approach our practice with a sense of freshness, free from any agenda. How do we keep our practice from slipping into... How do we keep our practice from slipping from sacred to self-improvement? I once asked my own meditation teacher this question, and he said, oh, that's simple. Just make offerings, request blessings, and dedicate the merit. That's pretty much all he said, but in the intervening years, I've thought about this pithy instruction quite a bit and have shared it with my own students. I highly recommend these three steps, which, though they sound religious, offerings, blessings, actually have nothing to do with beliefs or ethics or rules. If you approach them in a certain way, they're actually very personal, and have the capacity to resituate meditation in the realm of the spiritual rather than the psychological or religious. Here they are. Before you do your practice, make offerings. When you walk into a shrine room of any religion, there are often flowers, candles, and incense. These are offerings. You can make a similar type of setup in your home by creating a smaller version of a traditional shrine. Shrine objects tend to center around the senses, things you can see, smell, taste, touch, or hear. Images of respected figures, flowers or scented candles, sweets, beautiful fabrics, and music are often included in sacred spaces. A shrine or altar is a way of focusing the energy of these offerings 
So a table covered in brocade holding a candle and a photograph is a very simple way of showcasing your offering. It's not important to make your altar table the most beautiful in the history of the world. What is important is that it be clean and heartfelt. Or you can simply place some fresh flowers next to a picture of someone or something you love and aspire to emulate. You can light a candle as an offering of warmth, light, and safety. And when in doubt, the best offering is one you can always make, no matter where you are and how you feel. And that is your own experience in the moment. So before meditation, touch in with how it feels to be you right now. Maybe you feel great, crappy, or all of the above. Feel it. Offer it to whom or whatever you hold sacred by saying something like, I offer exactly who I am right now to the highest wisdom and goodness I can imagine. You don't have to know exactly what this means. Just rouse a sense of generosity. Next, request blessings. Requesting blessings as with Sacred offerings requires you to give up knowing what a blessing looks like exactly. Requesting of the gods what you think will make you happy, bring me my dream job, is like making a reservation at a five-star restaurant and then asking if you can go back into the kitchen and cook your own meal. Instead of cooking your own food, just try to order what sounds good to you. Please let me feel satisfied in my work. is better than please make me VP of finance. Other options include please let me find love. I wish to be free of this pain. Please teach me to forgive. These are good, basic requests that will allow a master chef to serve you something that exceeds all expectations. It's totally okay to ask the world to bless you. And who do you ask? If you are a Christian, you could ask Jesus. If you are a Buddhist, you could ask for your teacher's blessing. You can seek the blessings of magic if you are an alchemist, of Gandhi if you are a pacifist, of the earth if you're a pagan. The idea, the idea is to seek the blessings of your lineage. What lineage do you belong to? Is it a religious tradition? Maybe so, maybe not. Maybe you're of the lineage of poets or scientists, of painters, mothers, CEOs, creators, or lovers. Get a sense of your heart's lineage and, and in whatever way feels natural to you, request the blessings of that line. Requesting blessings is predicated on the assumption that greater powers are at work. This could mean any number of things to each of us. That greater power could be God, a deity, an angel, or the quality of human goodness. It could also be something unnameable, and perhaps this is the most trustworthy power of all. It doesn't really matter what you call this greater power. The only thing that seems required is to not quite understand what it is. Whenever anyone seems to know with too much certainty just what this power is, where it lives, what it thinks, and the primary means of access, I become a bit suspicious. Sure, all sorts of explanations make sense. But the only thing I know is that the moment I think I understand the sacred oneness of existence, I've stepped outside of that oneness, and therefore it can't be trusted. So when you request blessings, no matter how certain you are of where and whom they come from, let there also be a little bit of not knowing. After these two steps, do your practice. Then, after meditation, dedicate the merit. Once you have finished your practice, connect with whatever benefit you may have created for yourself through undertaking this practice. Once you have this felt sense, give it away. In whatever way feels natural for you, make the aspiration that that the results of your practice could be used to also benefit others. This is very important. My teacher, Sakyang Mipam Rinpoche, 
says that not dedicating the merit is like not hitting the save button on your Word doc before you shut down. That's the end. Wonderful. Thank you. I will look forward to buying that book when it comes out next year. Um, and you have you have so many offerings. Again, I really recommend that people go to your website, susanpiver.com. And some, you have an event this December at Shambhala Mountain Center in Colorado, Fearlessly Creative, a meditation and writing retreat. Um, you have other events in February on meditating on love, etc. And um, I guess I'd like to ask you again, and, and also there's another aspect of the Open Heart Project. You recently started uh, Sangha, which has a group page on Facebook, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about if someone would like to know more about your offering, where they can go, what they should look for. Thank you. Yes, my website, as you say, susanpiver.com, is the place to go and join the Open Heart Project. It's free. There are over 12,000 members, as, you, as you've mentioned, and you get one meditation video from me a week with a little talk. And then because there are other people, people have been doing this with me now for several years, I started the Open Heart Project Sangha, which is a, a membership. It's $27 a month, and you can cancel any time, for more meditation instructions than once a week and a, a monthly Dharma talk and a private Facebook page and monthly check-ins and a book club and uh, all sorts of ways with connecting, of connecting with like-minded people. So that is new, as I say. It's just launched in the end of September, and I'm really excited to be able to work with a smaller group of people to go a little bit deeper uh, with the practice. Yes, that's great. Um, and one other thing I wanted to mention before we end, I believe it was about a year ago that you offered a an at-home virtual meditation retreat with you, which I signed up for. And um, I think it was Friday night through Sunday noon, and you gave us um, video meditations and Dharma talks. Um, and then we had time on our own to do whatever creative work we would like to do, et cetera. And I love that weekend. I cannot tell you. I, I hope you will offer another one of those. And in fact, oh. I think when I was looking, you have you have something on Amazon for a weekend, a bliss bliss in a box. Is that right? Um, yeah, an at home retreat. Um, I really recommend to our listeners. There there are a few things that I have done that have brought me such joy. And um, again, you are just a wonderful teacher, wonderful author, Susan, and um, I hope that that some of our listeners who have who are not yet familiar with your work will soon become familiar with it. Oh, Donna, thank you so much, and I'm so thrilled to know that that weekend was beneficial for you. I loved it too, and and it's great to be able to retreat at home. Yes, yes. So, but I also hope to meet you in person one day, and I hope you go back to San Miguel Allende. I didn't make it to your retreat there, but do you do you have plans to go back there? No, but I'm open. I'm just waiting for the invitation. <laughs> I loved being in San Miguel, and I hope to meet in person too one day. That would be lovely. Yes, I have a friend who recently moved there at age 70, so um, she actually may be on the call tonight, a dream teacher, and so there would be double reason to go there. Thank oh, you cool. so much for your time tonight. Thank you for the books you've written and the meditation teachings you offer and your presence in the world. Thank you, Donna. Okay. Take care.
You too. And we have a... Uh, I hope you've enjoyed tonight's Tefera Talk Show as much as I have. The show will be archived and accessible for later listening on our website at www.tiferetjournal.com. That's T-I-F-E-R-E-T-J-O-U-R-N-A-L.com. You're invited to join our global community of writers and seekers there and to subscribe to our literary magazine, Ferret Journal. While on the website, you can also order a copy of our first Teferit talk book of transcribed interviews with earlier guests, including Robert Pinsky, Ed Hirsch, Julia Cameron, and others. Special thanks for this book and all our shows to R. Jeffries, Udo Hintz, and Melissa Studdard. Please join us at Teferit Talk next month when we interview poet Martha Serpis on December 3rd at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. In the meantime, all of us here at Teferit wish you and the world a meaningful and creative peace. May we all embody Teferit in our own lives, a loving heart, wise compassion, and an expansive reconciliation of opposites. Thank you.